Hi, everyone. Welcome to, I don't know what number episode it is, but this is the first episode of my science deep dives. As I told you earlier this week, and if you are a new listener, welcome, bonjour, and welcome to the podcast. But I'm starting these science deep dives. Now, they're not going to happen every single week, but they will be happening often. They're not going to be as long as my 40 or 45-minute episodes. We're going to see how long it goes. Who knows? I've not yet done one. But basically what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going into – I pick one topic in particular and I dive deep into that topic, um, still making it – I try to make it as understandable to someone that has not studied – you know, neurobiology or any or neuroscience or anything like that, because the aim of this podcast is to be describing or to share my passion for science and describing these topics in a way that is understandable to someone that has not, you know, gone through the depths of it. But it is going to be more in depth than what you'd get from my other podcasts or what you get from a lot of different um, information sites for someone that considers themselves to be more so a lay person in, in science. Okay. So I'm very excited to be sharing this. It is really interesting because while it is going into a, you know, more scientific uh, side of things, it's still very much something that you can hold on to that knowledge, even if you only absorb some of it and apply it into your everyday life. That's the main point of all these bits of information. I'm still going to show you how you can apply what I've taught you into your everyday life. So today I want to be talking about serotonin, what serotonin does, how to create more of it, especially through things such as exercise, which I'll be kind of hitting on at the end of this um, uh, podcast, and importantly, how it's produced, because that is one of the most important aspects of the whole thing, um, because pretty much I can't be talking about serotonin without talking about tryptophan, which is the precursor to serotonin. It's what what helps synthesize and create serotonin. Okay, So I will definitely be going into a lot more depth with that, because there's some very, very interesting facts that you're going to find out how tryptophan can be converted into serotonin or it can actually be converted into something quite toxic based on certain things that you can be doing. So really interesting. Stay tuned for the whole episode because you will find some very actionable things that you can be doing um, in order to enhance the chances that you can convert uh, tryptophan into serotonin. Okay. So without further ado, let's dive straight in. It is all science. I'm not talking about my week. I'm not talking about um, anything else. This is just purely a science deep dive. Okay. So serotonin, what is it? Serotonin is a monoamine neurotransmitter, meaning that it has one amine group in its molecule. So if you're interested in going into those crazy depths, you can actually Google what molecules look like and they all have a different shape and these shapes bind to certain things within the body. Certain molecules can't cross certain barriers like the blood-brain barrier, there's certain things and certain molecules are built in a certain way so they bind perfectly in certain pockets, okay? And these, the binding of a molecule will then activate something and there'll be like like a cascade of events that occurs after it binds. So in this scenario, uh, a monoamine has one amine in its molecule um, and and it looks a certain way. So other examples of monoamines are dopamine, norepinephrine, noradrenaline, and epinephrine. There's a whole other bunch of them. Okay. Serotonin, it's involved in a lot of things. So you're going to find that with the human body, most chemicals are used to do like a whole bunch of things. It's not just one thing because the body is like really, really efficient. The human body, well, nature in general is very efficient and it likes to assign multiple roles to something if possible. So that's why 
most, if not all, neurotransmitters and neurochemicals don't just do one thing. They do a lot of things. And then on the, the other side of that coin, that's also why it's so difficult for scientists to really understand the brain and neurotransmitters because of the role that they play in so many different areas, on so many different receptors and in so many different pathways, okay? Now, examples of things that serotonin does, um, it, it modulates mood or it's like a mood stabilizer. It assists in cognition, reward, like that, that feeling of reward, um, memory, learning, uh, physiological processes as well, such as like vomiting as it can stimulate nausea. It helps heal wounds. It reduces depression. It reduces anxiety. It's also really good for your bone health. And it's also heavily involved in your sleep-wake cycle. So... Uh, what else? It's um, it's abundantly found in your stomach and intestines as it also helps to control bowel movements and function. Um, but serotonin in the brain, however, it's, is what is believed to be attributed to like the mood and low levels um, of it or low levels of the precursor tryptophan. Um, that is also what's attributed to mood disorders. Now, let's talk about the catabolism of the essential amino acid tryptophan and catabolism catabolic that basically means the breakdown it's breaking down something okay so tryptophan tryptophan is an essential amino acid um, that's used for the synthesis of proteins so when you hear something being called an essential amino acid it means that it's essential to the human and it also means that the human cannot produce it themselves they can't synthesize this amino acid just by themselves. So it needs to be derived from the diet. Okay. So that's basically what it means. When you hear essential amino acid, you have to get that amino acid from your diet. And they're vital because amino acids are what build proteins and proteins are, you know, involved in pretty much every cell in the body. Okay. Now, what is so interesting about tryptophan is that it can go down I'm going to talk about two pathways. There's obviously way more that goes into this. I'm just skimming over the surface. If you find that certain topics are really interesting, go in depth. So I'm, I'm being quite brief with my description. There's a whole lot more behind the scenes that goes on. But let's talk about the two main pathways that it's going to go down. One is the serotonergic pathway, and that's where tryptophan ultimately gets converted into serotonin. So it gets metabolized by something called tryptophan hydroxylase, which is an enzyme, And that is what is then responsible for the synthesis of serotonin within the brain. It goes through a bit of a process, but basically like a hydroxyl group is added to tryptophan. You know how I'm talking about like different molecule shapes. And that then turns that molecule into serotonin. Now, also, I didn't mention this earlier, but serotonin is also known as 5-hydroxytryptamine. Okay. Um, But I'm going to refer to it as serotonin, of course, or 5-HT. You might say 5-HT, that's serotonin. Okay. So that's one of the pathways. The second one is that tryptophan can be metabolized or kind of degraded by other pathways. So it can go down the IDO, which stands for indolamine-2,3-deoxygenase, or it can go down the TDO, tryptophan-deoxygenase route, like these pathways. Basically, what that does, I'm just going to refer to it as IDO or TDO, that will then process uh, tryptophan in down the kynurenine pathway. And just like I said before, there's so many components to this pathway where all these different, um, different, uh, enzymes get added to it that ultimately end up with kynurenine. Okay. Now TDO is activated by cortisol. Okay. So 
if you are stressed or your immune system is under a lot of stress and you're especially chronic stress where there's a lot of cortisol floating around your system, then it can cause more of tryptophan to go down the carnurinin pathway because TDO is activated by cortisol and TDO is what converts tryptophan into carnurinin, okay, or, or to go down that carnurinin pathway, right? And then, of course, you reduce the amount that's available to be converted into serotonin. Now, keep in mind that you've got to look at there's conversion outside of the brain and then there's conversion within the brain. And often, but not always, when it crosses the blood-brain barrier, it is appeared to be more likely to be converted into serotonin and not go down the carnurinin pathway. And I'll go into that in a little bit. But when it's outside of the brain then you are seeing way more of a conversion down the carnurinin pathway than you are serotonin, okay? So that's got to do with how your body metabolizes it and what enzymes are available at the time or, or you know, of it being processed. Now, what can happen when it goes down that TDO or IDO route is that it ultimately gets broken down into something called quinolinic acid, okay? Now, quinolinic acid has neurotoxic effects, and this is where it can actually be quite bad for you, especially in large amounts. The reason it's neurotoxic is because it is an NMDA receptor agonist. Now, I'm going to quickly break it down. If you are an avid listener of my podcast, you would have heard on my Brain Facts where I talk about um, the NMDA receptors, which are receptors for the neurotransmitter glutamate. And glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter, which we love, we need, of course. It's the most abundant excitatory neurotransmitter within the brain. But it's a fine line, like everything you need to find homeostasis within, within you know, the brain, the body, life. So if there's too much activation of a cell, uh, then you get neurotoxic effects. It basically, long story short, becomes toxic and that cell can then lead to, uh, for it to die. You get, you get um, cell necrosis, they call it. So if you have something that is an agonist to a receptor, you are basically telling that receptor to crank up what it's doing. So if you're cranking up the NMDA receptor, you're allowing more activation of glutamate, which means more excitability, which means more excitotoxicity, which means more cell death. And cell death in that way can then cause inflammation and a whole other gamut of problems within the brain. If something is an antagonist, it is binding to the receptor, the NMDA receptor, or any receptor. Agonists and antagonists work on any receptor, but I'm talking about the NMDA receptor in particular. If something is an antagonist, it is pretty much dialing down. It's kind of blocking what that receptor can do. So it's allowing less, um, less glutamate to kind of come in and activate that cell. So you're getting less excitability and you're kind of like evening out the, the um, activity within the brain, which is a good thing. So quinolinic acid is neurotoxic because it is a receptor agonist. It is cranking up what the NMDA receptor is doing with glutamate, allowing glutamate to activate it, okay? And due to this, that's all this excitotoxicity and excitability within the cells. That's, that's heavily linked to a lot of psychiatric disorders, depressive disorders, mood disorders, major depressive disorder, as well as ALS, Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease and like, a whole, like way more. It's... it's a lot of these neurotoxic effects then have like this flow-on effect to a lot of um, mood disorders and degenerative diseases as well. And quinolinic acid does have a system that can uptake, like reuptake or absorb it. But that system, unfortunately, gets like 
uh, oversaturated quite easily or exhausted quite easily. So it doesn't really, it's not as effective as we would like it to be to kind of reabsorb. So then it's always kind of sitting there um, acting as an, uh, an agonist on the NMDA receptor and causing all these problems, right? Of course, keep in mind, this is not the only thing that's causing these, these diseases and um, mood disorders. There's so much more at play here, but this is definitely one of the factors. And they've seen like a huge correlation to quinolinic acid, the results of it on neurotoxicity, and then the problems that can arise after. Okay, now this is where it gets really interesting. There's another enzyme that is created, and it's called kynurinin aminotransferase, okay? Anything that ends in ASE is an enzyme. And that stops making quinolinic acid and forms kynuric acid instead. And kynuric acid is an antagonist of the NMDA receptor, okay? So it does exactly the opposite of quinolinic acid. So kynuric acid is an antagonist and therefore it is neuroprotective. It protects the neurons because you are not allowing too much excitability, okay? Now, how is kynurinin aminotransferase activated? It is actually activated through exercise. So as we exercise, the more you exercise, especially moderate to high intensity, you cause your muscle tissue to increase that amino um, acid, that um, enzyme. You increase the kynurinin aminotransferase and then that blocks it being converted, uh, that blocks the kynurinin pathway creating quinolinic acid and instead forming kynuric acid. So there's a lot of terminology here, but basically it's showing that as you exercise more, your muscles are producing things that are going to cause um, this whole cascade basically of shit to happen for you to have neuroprotective effects versus neurotoxic effects. It literally creates something that's the absolute opposite of it from an agonist to an antagonist. So as you can see here, what's happening in the brain, how the and the body, how the body converts tryptophan is also quite heavily influenced by what is already going on in the body, right? So if you are exercising, you're going to influence what is happening on that kynurinin pathway. If you already have a lot of inflammation um, or if you have a lot of production of cortisol, then that's going to influence that pathway to go down the quinolinic acid kind of route and become neurotoxic. So when we look at the release of the influence that cortisol has and how much cortisol and chronic stress versus what can be doing what you can be doing with exercise you see that things that already exist in your body and how they're already acting can actually be altered and changed based on what you do with your life like what are you doing to reduce your levels of stress emotionally and physical stress what are you doing to enhance the production of certain neurotrophic factors and certain um, uh, enzymes to help convert something instead of going down the quinolinic acid route to go down the kynuric acid route. So there's a lot that can be done with your behavior. Firstly, I'm going to go into that in a second, but firstly, what I want you to know is where is tryptophan found in your diet? Because of course it's important even though you're thinking, oh, I don't want it to do the bad things, it is an essential amino acid. You want to make sure that you have good levels of tryptophan in your diet because without tryptophan, you can't then get that conversion into serotonin. So basically tryptophan is found in, it's honestly a shitload of things, chocolate, uh, chickpeas, red meat, fish, poultry. So a whole bunch of things. You can Google it, but it's, it's quite common within the diet. So it shouldn't be hard to make sure that you're getting good amounts of uh, tryptophan within your diet. 
Now let's go into the importance of exercise. You've probably heard me bang on about the importance of exercise for several reasons, why it's good for everything. And the reason I do this is because it just is. It just is good for so many things. I've always, one of my biggest passions has been linking physical exercise with brain health. For me personally, one of the main reasons that I train is for brain health, for the immediate effects and also for the long-term effects. I instantly feel better after exercise. I instantly feel calmer and more focused. But of course, I understand that long-term, it's one of the best things I can be doing um, for like neuroprotective reasons. So that's also a big reason why I exercise. I know other people have different reasons for exercising, but those are my main ones. Of course, I want to feel good as well, but uh, the brain is my main reason. Now, let's talk about how you can kind of, on top of the fact that exercise, your, your muscle tissues release, you know, all these, everything I just said, on top of that, when you exercise, when you put your body under this positive stress, so it's not like you're not releasing all this cortisol and stressed and it's not this chronic stress, it's positive stressor like intense exercise, you are actually increasing uh, something, it's a neurotrophic factor, in particular, one called BDNF, which is brain derived neurotrophic factor. It is present within the brain, obviously, but it's also present throughout the body, not just within the brain. Now, when it's in the brain, the, the, the one that's present within the brain, it's a, it's a neurotrophin, right? Which it basically promotes the growth of new neurons, but it also keeps existing neurons alive. And what's really interesting is that it's also linked to neuroplasticity. So it's not just the neuron that it helps, but it also helps the connectivity from cell to cell. So it helps rewire your brain as you develop and change. We're always going through neuroplastic changes in our lives. Not not just when you have an accident, not just when you've had a lesion, not just when you're like really trying to manifest some change. You are constantly, constantly going through your brain is constantly changing those connections and pathways. Whatever, Basically, whatever pathway you're feeding with the most attention, energy, oxygen, blood supply, that's where you're going to see more of an increase in, in synapses and in connections. The ones that you leave kind of it weakens, weakens. It might never go away, but it's really weak. It's kind of like a, like a skill. You know, if you, if you stopped playing the guitar all of a sudden and you'd only picked it up, you know, 10 years later, you'd be pretty sloppy at it. You'd, f- you'd forget quite a lot, but you'd remember some things. The same goes for, um, you know, speaking a language. Kind of, you've got the essence of it there, but if you never use it, it feels like you're losing it, okay? The whole use it or lose it. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor is fantastic for enhancing neuroplasticity. So if you're trying to learn something or rewire something or change your beliefs, change your thoughts, change how you react to things, um, also change you know, your motor skills, then this neurotrophic factor, a lot of neurotrophic factors, but this one in particular is going to be really, really beneficial for you. And the more you exercise, the more you're going to see uh, um, a boost in the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And separate to that, this neurotrophic factor is also, of course, neuroprotective. So as we were saying, what quinolinic acid does and how it can be neurotoxic, you've then got the, the added barrier or at like of protection of when you exercise, not only are you going down that kinuric acid pathway where it becomes neuroprotective, you're also increasing your this neurotrophic factor, BDNF, um, and you're, you're, you know, becoming, you're protecting these cells and you're increasing activity and neurogenesis and synaptogenesis and all these things. 
What they also found is that people with depression were found to have lower levels of BDNF or serum BDNF within their system. And as people started exercising and moving more, they saw an increase. So it really does play into mood disorders as well. You genuinely, genuinely address depression, anxiety, and stress by exercising more. Now, what kind of exercise am I talking about? The more intense, the better. And the longer you do it, obviously within reason, the better. So if you're looking at, should I, like, let's talk about like a high intensity, uh, like sprint sessions or a spin class, for example, or uh, like Versa climbers, they're really good. Any like a tread, like running on the tread. If you're doing that for 15 minutes, that's great. Moderate intensity is good. High intensity is better. If you can then do it for 30 minutes, that's even better. If you can do it for 40 minutes, that's even better. So basically you want to think obviously within reason and you need to train up to these points. You're not not aiming to kill yourself, but if you can sustain a high intensity, obviously in intervals, but a high intensity of exercise for really ideally 40 minutes, as many days a week as you can, then that's where you're going to see these like big changes and big effects. Now I get people telling me, yeah, Alexis, but that's all well and good, but I don't like training intensely. What do you want me to say? You know, I can't help that you don't like it, but that doesn't change the fact that high intensity exercise often is what gives you these crazy good results. Yes, you can get neuroprotective um, gains 100% by not being stressed, by still doing like low intensity exercise is always better than no exercise for sure. By meditating, there's a lot that you can be doing if you're not doing high intensity exercise. But the fact that you don't like high intensity exercise does not change the fact that it is that people that will do the high intensity exercise will be at an advantage. So if you are doing high intensity exercise with all the things I just said, meditation, less stress, all of that, you will be at an advantage a big advantage to somebody that does not exercise at all. We're talking like 30, 40% difference, okay? So really important that you try and include these, if possible, obviously within reason, include more for like moderate to intense exercise within your uh, timetable, okay? I get people saying, oh, but I only like doing yoga. Fine, well, you best be sure that you are meditating, eating well, doing everything else, okay? Because you've got to look at it as like a holistic approach to life. If you're not doing one thing, fine. No, it's fine, it's not the end of the world, but make sure you're doing the other things, okay? And having said that, it's not going to be enough to only do intense exercise, okay? That also isn't enough, not at all. It's just... a a great benefit if you do it. If you're doing intense exercise, but you're getting shit sleep, you're always under severe amounts of stress, chronic stress, chronic inflammation, chronic levels of cortisol. Yeah, you're being a little bit neuroprotective, but it's definitely not going to be great. And you're not going to be better off than somebody who's done all the other things and not exercising, if that makes sense. Guys, I hope that that was educational for you. Um, Basically, the take-home message is exercise moderate to high intensity, reduce your levels of chronic stress. And of course, exercise does that, but meditation is a really good way of doing that. If you are somebody that, um, you know, of course, sleep is always going to have, sleep is good for many reasons. One, I'm going to do a whole podcast on, on what it's good for. But one, of course, when you're actually sleeping, good things are happening. But also good sleep helps helps reduce stress because you're more focused, you get more done, so you're less likely to be, you know, stressed or upset or have anxiety, okay? So, of course, you want to be looking at your sleep. That's going to help, help reduce stress. For me, the biggest advice I could ever give you is you are always better off 
stressing less. And when I talk about stress, I am referring to chronic stress. Acute stress is fine. You know, that intense, you know, anxiety you get before getting on stage. That's okay. That intense, like, oh my God, I have a deadline. That's okay. As long as it's not all the time and chronic and you're not feeling this every single day. Okay. We kind of need that as a boost. It's almost like a boost of, well, it is adrenaline to get us through. Okay. Like if you're about to do a race or a performance, that's normal. That's fine. And that gets reabsorbed quite quickly. That kind of intense, like a boost of stress is, is good. Okay. The, the issue is when it's chronic and constant. Okay. And if you have that in your life, you have to prioritize, you have to prioritize your brain health over your income. If you are in a job that's way too stressful, you need to take a pay cut and release some of those um, responsibilities. It is never worth it because what is the point of making all this money and, you know, appearing to succeed so well when you're going to have some neurodegenerative disease at the end of the day and depression. It's not worth it, okay? So you have to look at your stresses and not have the attitude of, oh, I can't do anything about it. There's always something that can be done. Even if it's minor, do it. Guys, thank you so much. That was my first science deep dive. I'm so, so happy to be doing this. As you guys know, I fucking love science. So let me know what other topics you would like to hear. I mean, I've got a massive list, but I always want to be hearing more. On my Instagram, I'll always be doing votes on which science deep dives you want to hear more of um, and on the Facebook page as well. So if you are not already a member of the Facebook page, it is Do You Fucking Mind with Alexis Fernandez. You just request to join and I'm multiple times a day, I'm letting people into that group. Um, it's an awesome community there. And then, of course, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Alexis Predez, P-R-E-D-E-Z. That's the handle. And I will be doing surveys and stuff on um, my stories as well. So I would love your engagement in all of that. And thank you so much. As always, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone. And especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.